Article 2 of the Defense of the Augsburg Confession by Philip Alenthon Translated by F. Bente and W. H. T. Dow This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of Justification, Augustana 4 In the 4th, 5th, 6th, and below in the 20th article, they condemn us for teaching that men obtain remission of sins not because of their own merits, but freely for Christ's sake, through faith in Christ. They reject quite stubbornly both these statements. For they condemn us both for denying that men obtain remission of sins because of their own merits, and for affirming that through faith men obtain remission of sins, and through faith in Christ are justified. But since in this controversy the chief topic of Christian doctrine is treated, which, understood aright, illumines and amplifies the honor of Christ, which is of a special service for the clear, correct understanding of the entire Holy Scriptures, and alone shows the way to the unspeakable treasure and right knowledge of Christ, and alone opens the door to the entire Bible, and brings necessary and most abundant consolation to devout consciences, we ask His Imperial Majesty to hear us with forbearance in regard to matters of such importance. For since the adversaries understand neither what the remission of sins, nor what faith, nor what grace, nor what righteousness is, they sadly corrupt this topic, and obscure the glory and benefits of Christ, and rob devout consciences of the consolations offered in Christ. But that we may strengthen the position of our confession, and also remove the charges which the adversaries advance against us, certain things are to be premised in the beginning, in order that the sources of both kinds of doctrine, that is, both that of our adversaries and our own, may be known. All Scripture ought to be distributed into these two principal topics, the law and the promises. For in some places it presents the law, and in others the promise concerning Christ, namely, either when in the Old Testament it promises that Christ will come and offers for His sake the remission of sins, justification, and life eternal, or when in the Gospel, in the New Testament, Christ Himself, since He has appeared, promises the remission of sins, justification, and life eternal. Moreover, in this discussion, by law we designate the Ten Commandments, wherever they are read in the Scriptures. Of the ceremonies and judicial laws of Moses we say nothing at present. Of these two parts the adversaries select the law, because human reason naturally understands, in some way, the law, for it has the same judgment divinely written in the mind. The natural law agrees with the law of Moses, or the Ten Commandments, and by the law they seek the remission of sins in justification. Now the Decalogue requires not only outward civil works, which reason can in some way produce, but it also requires other things placed far above reason, namely, truly to fear God, truly to love God, truly to call upon God, truly to be convinced that God hears us, and to expect the aid of God in death and in all afflictions. Finally, it requires obedience to God in death and all afflictions, so that we may not flee from these or refuse them when God imposes them. Here the scholastics, having followed the philosophers, teach only a righteousness of reason, namely civil works, and fabricate, besides, that without the Holy Ghost reason can love God above all things. For as long as the human mind is at ease, and does not feel the wrath or judgment of God, 
it can imagine that it wishes to love God, that it wishes to do good for God's sake. But it is sheer hypocrisy. In this manner they teach that men merit the remission of sins by doing what is in them. That is, if reason, grieving over sin, elicit an act of love to God, or for God's sake be active in that which is good. And because this opinion naturally flatters men, it has brought forth and multiplied in the church many services, monastic vows, abuses of the mass, and, with this opinion, the one has, in the course of time, devised this act of worship and observances, the other that. And in order that they might nourish and increase confidence in such works, they have affirmed that God necessarily gives grace to one thus working, by the necessity not of constraint, but of immutability. Not that he is constrained, but that this is the order which God will not transgress or alter. In this opinion there are many great and pernicious errors, which it would be tedious to enumerate. Let the discreet reader think only of this. If this be Christian righteousness, what difference is there between philosophy and the doctrine of Christ? If we merit the remission of sins by these illicit acts that spring from our mind, of what benefit is Christ? If we can be justified by reason and the works of reason, wherefore is there need of Christ or regeneration, as Peter declares, 1 Peter 1, 18 and following? And from these opinions the matter has now come to such a pass that many ridicule us, because we teach that an other than the philosophic righteousness must be sought after. Alas, it has come to this, that even great theologians at Louvain, Paris, and so forth, have known nothing of any other godliness or righteousness, although every letter and syllable in Paul teaches otherwise, than the godliness which philosophers teach. And although we ought to regard this as a strange teaching, and ought to ridicule it, they rather ridicule us, yea, make a jest of Paul himself. We have heard that some, after setting aside the gospel, have, instead of a sermon, explained the ethics of Aristotle. I myself have heard a great preacher who did not mention Christ and the gospel, and preached the ethics of Aristotle. Is this not a childish, foolish way to preach to Christians? Nor did such men err if those things are true which the adversaries defend, if the doctrine of the adversaries be true. The Ethics is a precious book of sermons, and a fine new Bible. For Aristotle wrote concerning civil morals so learnedly that nothing further concerning this need be demanded. We see books extant in which certain sayings of Christ are compared with the sayings of Socrates, Zeno, and others, as though Christ had come for the purpose of delivering certain laws through which we might merit the remission of sins, as though we did not receive this gratuitously because of his merits. Therefore, if we here receive the doctrine of the adversaries, that by the works of reason we merit the remission of sins and justification, there will be no difference between philosophic, or certainly pharisaic, and Christian righteousness. Although the adversaries, not to pass by Christ altogether, require a knowledge of the history concerning Christ, and describe to him that it is his merit that a habit is given us, or, as they say, prima gratia, first grace, which they understand as a habit, inclining us the more readily to love God. Yet what they ascribe to this habit is of little importance, is a feeble, 
paltry, small, poor operation that would be ascribed to Christ, because they imagine that the acts of the will are of the same kind before and after this habit. They imagine that the will can love God, but nevertheless this habit stimulates it to do the same the more cheerfully. And they bid us first merit this habit by preceding merits. Then they bid us merit by the works of the law an increase of this habit, and life eternal. Thus they bury Christ, so that men may not avail themselves of him as a mediator, and believe that for his sake they freely receive remission of sins and reconciliation but may dream that by their own fulfillment of the law they merit the remission of sins, and that by their own fulfillment of the law they are accounted righteous before God, while nevertheless the law is never satisfied, since reason does nothing except certain civil works, and in the meantime neither in the heart fears God nor truly believes that God cares for it. And although they speak of this habit, yet without the righteousness of faith, Neither the love of God can exist in man, nor can it be understood what the love of God is. They're feigning a distinction between meritum congrui and meritum condigni. Due merit, and true complete merit, is only an artifice, in order not to appear openly to Pelagianize. For if God necessarily gives grace for the meritum congrui, due merit, it is no longer meritum congrui, but meritum condigni a true duty, and complete merit. But they do not know what they are saying. After this habit of love is there, they imagine that man can acquire merit de condigno, and yet they bid us doubt whether there be a habit present. How, therefore, do they know whether they acquire merit de congruo or de condigno, in full or half? But this whole matter was fabricated by idle men, but, good God, these are mere inane ideas and dreams of idle, wretched, inexperienced men who do not much reduce the Bible to practice, who do not know how the remission of sins occurs, and how, in the judgment of God and terrors of conscience, trust in works is driven out of us. Secure hypocrites always judge that they acquire merit de condigno, whether the habit be present or be not present because men naturally trust in their own righteousness. But terrified consciences waver and hesitate, and then seek and accumulate other works in order to find rest. Such consciences never think that they acquire merit de condigno, and they rush into despair unless they hear, in addition to the doctrine of the law, the gospel concerning the gratuitous remission of sins and the righteousness of faith. Thus some stories are told, that when the barefooted monks had in vain praised their order and good works to some good consciences in the hour of death, they at last had to be silent concerning their order and St. Franciscus, and to say, Dear man, Christ has died for you. This revived and refreshed in trouble, and alone gave peace and comfort. Thus the adversaries teach nothing but the righteousness of reason, or certainly of the law, upon which they look just as the Jews upon the veiled face of Moses, and, in secure hypocrites who think that they satisfy the law, they excite presumption and empty confidence in works. They place men on a sand foundation, their own works, and contempt of the grace of Christ. 
On the contrary, they drive timid consciences to despair, which, laboring with doubt, never can experience what faith is, and how efficacious it is. Thus, at last, they utterly despair. Now, we think concerning the righteousness of reason thus, namely, that God requires it, and that, because of God's commandment, the honorable works which the Decalogue commands must necessarily be performed, according to the passage, Galatians 3.24, the law was our schoolmaster. Likewise, 1 Timothy 1.9, the law is made for the ungodly. For God wishes those who are carnal, gross sinners, to be restrained by civil discipline, and to maintain this, he has given laws, letters, doctrine, magistrates, penalties. And this righteousness, reason, by its own strength, can to a certain extent work, although it is often overcome by natural weakness, and by the devil impelling it to manifest crimes. Now, although we cheerfully assign this righteousness of reason, the praises that are due it, for this corrupt nature has no greater good in this life, and in a worldly nature nothing is ever better than uprightness and virtue. And Aristotle says aright, Neither the evening star nor the morning star is more beautiful than righteousness, and God also honors it with bodily rewards. Yet it ought not to be praised with reproach to Christ. For it is false, I thus conclude, and am certain that it is a fiction and not true, that we merit the remission of sins by our works. False also is this, that men are accounted righteous before God because of the righteousness of reason, works, and external piety. False also is this, that reason by its own strength is able to love God above all things, and to fulfill God's law, namely, truly to fear God, to be truly confident that God hears prayer, to be willing to obey God in death and other dispensations of God, not to covet what belongs to others, and so forth, although reason can work civil works. False also, and dishonoring Christ, is this, that men do not sin who, without grace, do the commandments of God, who keep the commandments of God merely in an external manner, without the Spirit and grace in their hearts. We have testimonies for this our belief, not only from the Scriptures, but also from the Fathers. For in opposition to the Pelagians, Augustine contends at great length that grace is not given because of our merits. And in De Natura et Gratia, he says, If natural ability, through the free will, suffice both for learning to know how one ought to live and for living aright, then Christ has died in vain. Then the offense of the cross is made void. Why may I not also here cry out, Yea, I will cry out, and with Christian grief will chide them. Christ has become of no effect unto you whatsoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4, compare 2.21. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to every one that believeth, Romans ten three and four, and John eight thirty six. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Therefore, by reason we cannot be freed from sins and merit the remission of sins. And in John three five it is written, 
Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But if it is necessary to be born again of the Holy Ghost, the righteousness of reason does not justify us before God, and does not fulfill the law. Romans 3.23 All have come short of the glory of God, that is, are destitute of the wisdom and righteousness of God, which acknowledges and glorifies God. Likewise, Romans 8, 7 and 8. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. These testimonies are so manifest that to use the words of Augustine, which he employed in this case, they do not need an acute understanding, but only an attentive hearer. If the carnal mind is enmity against God, the flesh certainly does not love God. If it cannot be subjected to the law of God, it cannot love God. If the carnal mind is enmity against God, the flesh sins even when we do external civil works. If it cannot be subject to the law of God, it certainly sins even when, according to human judgment, it possesses deeds that are excellent and worthy of praise. The adversaries consider only the precepts of the second table, which contains civil righteousness that reason understands. Content with this, they think that they satisfy the law of God. In the meantime, they do not see the first table, which commands that we love God, that we declare as certain that God is angry with sin, that we truly fear God, that we declare as certain that God hears prayer. But the human heart without the Holy Ghost either in security despises God's judgment or in punishment flees from and hates God when he judges. Therefore it does not obey the first table. Since, therefore, contempt of God and doubt concerning the word of God and concerning the threats and promises inhere in human nature, men truly sin even when, without the Holy Ghost, they do virtuous works, because they do them with a wicked heart, according to Romans 14.23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. For such persons perform their works with contempt of God, just as Epicurus does not believe that God cares for him, or that he is regarded or heard by God. This contempt vitiates works seemingly virtuous, because God judges the heart. Lastly, it was very foolish of the adversaries to write that men who are under eternal wrath merit the remission of sins by an act of love which springs from their mind, since it is impossible to love God, unless the remission of sins be apprehended first by faith. For the heart, truly feeling that God is angry, cannot love God, unless he has been shown to have been reconciled. As long as he terrifies us and seems to cast us into eternal death, human nature is not able to take courage so as to love a wrathful, judging, and punishing God. Poor, weak nature must lose heart and courage, and must tremble before such great wrath, which so fearfully terrifies and punishes, and can never feel a spark of love before God himself comforts. It is easy for idle men to feign such dreams concerning love, as that a person guilty of mortal sin can love God above all things, because they do not feel what the wrath or judgment of God is. 
but in agony of conscience and in conflicts with satan conscience experiences the emptiness of these philosophical speculations paul says romans four fifteen the law worketh wrath he does not say that by the law men merit the remission of sins for the law always accuses and terrifies consciences therefore it does not justify because conscience terrified by the law flees from the judgment of god therefore they err who trust that by the law by their own works they merit the remission of sins it is sufficient for us to have said these things concerning the righteousness of reason or of the law which the adversaries teach for after a while when we will declare our belief concerning the righteousness of faith the subject itself will compel us to adduce more testimonies which also will be of service in overthrowing the errors of the adversaries which we have thus far reviewed because therefore men by their own strength cannot fulfil the law of god and all are under sin and subject to eternal wrath and death on this account we cannot be freed by the law from sin and be justified but the promise of the remission of sins and of justification has been given us for christ's sake who was given for us in order that he might make satisfaction for the sins of the world and has been appointed as the only mediator and propitiator and this promise has not the condition of our merits it does not read thus through christ you have grace salvation and so forth if you merit it but freely offers the remission of sins in justification as paul says romans eleven six if it be of works then is it no more of grace and in another place romans three twenty one the righteousness of god without the law is manifested that is the remission of sins is freely offered nor does reconciliation depend upon our merits because if the remission of sins were to depend upon our merits and reconciliation were from the law it would be useless for as we do not fulfil the law it would also follow that we would never obtain the promise of reconciliation thus paul reasons romans four fourteen for if they which are of the law be heirs faith is made void and the promise made of none effect for if the promise would require the condition of our merits and the law which we never fulfil it would follow that the promise would be useless but since justification is obtained through the free promise it follows that we cannot justify ourselves otherwise wherefore would there be need to promise and why should paul so highly extol and praise grace for since the promise cannot be received except by faith the gospel which is properly the promise of the remission of sins and of justification for christ's sake proclaims the righteousness of faith in christ which the law does not teach nor is this the righteousness of the law for the law requires of us our works and our perfection but the gospel freely offers for christ's sake to us who have been vanquished by sin and death reconciliation which is received not by works but by faith alone this faith brings to god not confidence in one's own merits but only confidence in the promise or the mercy promised in christ this special faith therefore by which an individual believes that for christ's sake his sins are remitted him and that for christ's sake god is reconciled and propitious obtains remission of sins and justifies us 
And because in repentance, that is, in terrors, it comforts and encourages hearts, it regenerates us and brings the Holy Ghost, that then we may be able to fulfill God's law, namely, to love God, truly to fear God, truly to be confident that God hears prayer, and to obey God in all afflictions. It mortifies concupiscence, and so forth. Thus, because faith, which freely receives the remission of sins, sets Christ the mediator and propitiator against God's wrath, it does not present our merits or our love, which would be tossed aside like a little feather by a hurricane. This faith is the true knowledge of Christ, and avails itself of the benefits of Christ, and regenerates hearts and precedes the fulfilling of the law. And of this faith not a syllable exists in the doctrine of our adversaries. Hence we find fault with the adversaries, equally because they teach only the righteousness of the law, and because they do not teach the righteousness of the gospel, which proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. What is justifying faith? The adversaries feign that faith is only a knowledge of the history, and therefore teach that it can coexist with mortal sin. Hence they say nothing concerning faith, by which Paul so frequently says that men are justified, because those who are accounted righteous before God do not live in mortal sin. But that faith which justifies is not merely a knowledge of history, not merely this, that I know the stories of Christ's birth, suffering, and so forth. That even the devils know. But it is to assent to the promise of God, in which, for Christ's sake, the remission of sins and justification are freely offered. It is the certainty or the certain trust in the heart, when, with my whole heart, I regard the promises of God as certain and true, through which there are offered me without my merit the forgiveness of sins, grace, and all salvation through Christ the Mediator. And that no one may suppose that it is mere knowledge, we will add further. It is to wish and to receive the offered promise of the remission of sins and of justification. Faith is that my whole heart takes to itself this treasure. It is not my doing, not my presenting or giving, not my work or preparation but that a heart comforts itself, and is perfectly confident with respect to this, namely, that God makes a present and gift to us, and not we to Him, that He sheds upon us every treasure of grace in Christ. And the difference between this faith and the righteousness of the law can be easily discerned. Faith is the latreva, divine service, which receives the benefits offered by God, the righteousness of the law is the latreva, divine service, which offers to God our merits. By faith God wishes to be worshipped in this way, that we receive from Him those things which He promises and offers. Now, that faith signifies not only a knowledge of the history, but such faith as assents to the promise, Paul plainly testifies when he says, Romans 4.16, Therefore it is of faith, to the end the promise might be sure. For he judges that the promise cannot be received unless by faith. Wherefore he puts them together as things that belong to one another, and connects promise and faith. There Paul fastens and binds together these two thus. Wherever there is a promise, faith is required, and, conversely, wherever faith is required, there must be a promise. 
although it will be easy to decide what faith is if we consider the creed where this article certainly stands, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore it is not enough to believe that Christ was born, suffered, and raised again, unless we add also this article, which is the purpose of the history, the forgiveness of sins. To this article the rest must be referred, namely, that for Christ's sake, and not for the sake of our merits, forgiveness of sins is given us. For what need was there that Christ was given for our sins, if for our sins our merits can make satisfaction? As often, therefore, as we speak of justifying faith, we must keep in mind that these three objects concur, the promise, and that too gratuitous, and the merits of Christ, as the price and propitiation. The promise is received by faith. The gratuitous excludes our merits, and signifies that the benefit is offered only through mercy. The merits of Christ are the price, because there must be a certain propitiation for our sins. Scripture frequently implores mercy, and the Holy Fathers often say that we are saved by mercy. As often, therefore, as mention is made of mercy, we must keep in mind that faith is there required, which receives the promise of mercy. And again, as often as we speak of faith, we wish an object to be understood, namely, the promised mercy. For faith justifies and saves, not on the ground that it is a work in itself worthy, but only because it receives the promised mercy. And throughout the prophets and the psalms, this worship, this latreva, is highly praised, although the law does not teach the gratuitous remission of sins. But the fathers knew the promise concerning Christ, that God for Christ's sake wished to remit sins. Therefore, since they understood that Christ would be the price for our sins, they knew that our works are not a price for so great a matter, could not pay so great a debt. Accordingly, they received gratuitous mercy and remission of sins by faith, just as the saints in the New Testament. Here belong those frequent repetitions concerning mercy and faith in the Psalms and the Prophets, as this, Psalm 133 and following. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Here David confesses his sins and does not recount his merits. He adds, but there is forgiveness with thee. Here he comforts himself by his trust in God's mercy, and he cites the promise. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. That is, because thou hast promised a remission of sins, I am sustained by this thy promise. Therefore the fathers also were justified, not by the law, but by the promise and faith. And it is amazing that the adversaries extenuate faith to such a degree, although they see that it is everywhere praised as an eminent service, as in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee. Thus God wishes himself to be known, thus he wishes himself to be worshipped, that from him we receive benefits, and receive them too because of his mercy, and not because of our merits. This is the richest consolation in all afflictions, physical or spiritual, in life or in death, as all godly persons know. And such consolations the adversaries abolish when they extenuate and disparage faith, and teach only that by means of works and merits men treat with God, that we treat with God the great majesty by means of our miserable beggarly works and merits. That faith in Christ justifies. In the first place, 
Lest any one may think that we speak concerning an idle knowledge of the history, we must declare how faith is obtained, how the heart begins to believe. Afterward we will show both that it justifies, and how this ought to be understood, and we will explain the objections of the adversaries. Christ, in the last chapter of Luke, 24.47, commands that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name. For the gospel convicts all men that they are under sin, that they are all subject to eternal wrath and death, and offers for Christ's sake remission of sin and justification, which is received by faith. The preaching of repentance, which accuses us, terrifies consciences with true and grave terrors. For the preaching of repentance, or this declaration of the gospel, amend your lives, repent, when it truly penetrates the heart, terrifies the conscience, and is no jest, but a great terror, in which the conscience feels its misery and sin, and the wrath of God. In these, hearts ought again to receive consolation. This happens if they believe the promise of Christ, that for his sake we have remission of sins. This faith, encouraging and consoling in these fears, receives remission of sins, justifies and quickens. For this consolation is a new and spiritual life, a new birth and a new life. These things are plain and clear, and can be understood by the pious, and have testimonies of the church, as is to be seen in the conversion of Paul and Augustine. The adversaries nowhere can say how the Holy Ghost is given. They imagine that the sacraments confer the Holy Ghost ex opera operato, without a good emotion in the recipient, as though indeed the gift of the Holy Ghost were an idle matter. But since we speak of such faith as is not an idle thought, but of that which liberates from death and produces a new life in hearts, which is such a new light, life, and force in the heart as to renew our heart, mind, and spirit, makes new men of us and new creatures, and is the work of the Holy Ghost. This does not coexist with mortal sin, for how can light and darkness coexist? But as long as it is present produces good fruits, as we will say after a while. For concerning the conversion of the wicked, or concerning the mode of regeneration, what can be said that is more simple and more clear? Let them, from so great an array of writers, adduce a single commentary upon the sententiae that speaks of the mode of regeneration. When they speak of the habit of love, they imagine that men merit it through works, and they do not teach that it is received through the word, precisely as also the Anabaptists teach at this time. But God cannot be treated with. God cannot be apprehended except through the word. Accordingly, justification occurs through the word, just as Paul says, Romans 1.16, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. Likewise, Romans 10.17, Faith cometh by hearing. And proof can be derived even from this, that faith justifies. Because if justification occurs only through the word, and the word is apprehended only by faith, it follows that faith justifies. But there are other and more important reasons. We have said these things thus far in order that we might show the mode of regeneration, and that the nature of faith, which is or is not faith, concerning which we speak, might be understood. Now we will show that faith and nothing else justifies. 
Here, in the first place, readers must be admonished of this, that just as it is necessary to maintain this sentence, Christ is mediator, so it is necessary to defend that faith justifies without works. For how will Christ be mediator, if in justification we do not use him as mediator, if we do not hold that for his sake we are accounted righteous? But to believe is to trust in the merits of Christ, that for his sake God certainly wishes to be reconciled with us. Likewise, just as we ought to maintain that, apart from the law, the promise of Christ is necessary, so also it is needful to maintain that faith justifies. For the law does not preach the forgiveness of sin by grace. For the law cannot be performed unless the Holy Ghost be first received. It is, therefore, needful to maintain that the promise of Christ is necessary. But this cannot be received except by faith. Therefore, those who deny that faith justifies teach nothing but the law, both Christ and the gospel being set aside. But when it is said that faith justifies, some perhaps understand it of the beginning, namely, that faith is the beginning of justification, or preparation for justification, so that not faith itself is that through which we are accepted by God, but the works which follow. And they dream, accordingly, that faith is highly praised because it is the beginning. For great is the importance of the beginning, as they commonly say. Arche hemesu pantos. The beginning is half of everything. Just as if one would say that grammar makes the teachers of all arts, because it prepares for other arts, although in fact it is his own art that renders everyone an artist. We do not believe thus concerning faith, but we maintain this, that properly and truly, by faith itself, we are for Christ's sake accounted righteous, or are acceptable to God. And because to be justified means that out of unjust men just men are made, or born again, it means also that they are pronounced or accounted just. For Scripture speaks in both ways. The term to be justified is used in two ways, to denote being converted or regenerated, again, being accounted righteous. Accordingly, we wish first to show this, that faith alone makes of an unjust a just man, that is, receives remission of sins. The particle alone offends some, although even Paul says, Romans 3.28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Again, Ephesians 2.8, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, Romans 3.24, being justified freely. If the exclusive alone displeases, let them remove from Paul also the exclusives freely, not of works. It is the gift, and so forth. For these also are very strong exclusives. It is, however, the opinion of merit that we exclude. We do not exclude the word or sacraments, as the adversaries falsely charge us. For we have said above that faith is conceived from the word, and we honor the ministry of the word in the highest degree. Love also and works must follow faith, wherefore they are not excluded so as not to follow. But confidence in the merit of love or of works is excluded in justification, and this we will clearly show. That we may obtain remission of sins by faith alone in Christ. 
We think that even the adversaries acknowledge that, in justification, the remission of sins is necessary first, for we all are under sin. Wherefore we reason thus. To attain the remission of sins is to be justified, according to Psalm 32.1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. By faith alone in Christ, not through love, not because of love or works, do we acquire the remission of sins, although love follows faith. Therefore, by faith alone we are justified, understanding justification as the making of a righteous man out of an unrighteous, or that he be regenerated. It will thus become easy to declare the minor premise, that we obtain forgiveness of sins by faith, not by love, if we know how the remission of sins occurs. The adversaries, with great indifference, dispute whether the remission of sins and the infusion of grace are the same change whether they are one change or two. Being idle men, they did not know what to answer, cannot speak at all on this subject. In the remission of sins, the terrors of sin and of eternal death in the heart must be overcome, as Paul testifies, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six and following. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, sin terrifies consciences. This occurs through the law, which shows the wrath of God against sin. But we gain the victory through Christ. How? By faith, when we comfort ourselves by the confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Thus, therefore, we prove the minor proposition. The wrath of God cannot be appeased if we set against it our own works, because Christ has been set forth as a propitiator, so that for his sake the Father may become reconciled to us. But Christ is not apprehended as a mediator except by faith. Therefore by faith alone we obtain remission of sins, when we comfort our hearts with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Likewise Paul, Romans 5.2, says, By whom also we have access, and adds, by faith. Thus, therefore, we are reconciled to the Father and receive remission of sins when we are comforted with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. The adversaries regard Christ as mediator and propitiator for this reason, namely, that he has merited the habit of love. They do not urge us to use him now as mediator, but as though Christ were altogether buried, they imagine that we have access through our own works and through these merit this habit, and afterwards, by this love, come to God. Is not this to bury Christ altogether, and to take away the entire doctrine of faith? Paul, on the contrary, teaches that we have access, that is, reconciliation, through Christ. And to show how this occurs, he adds that we have access by faith. By faith, therefore, for Christ's sake, we receive remission of sins. We cannot set our own love and our own works over against God's wrath. Secondly, it is certain that sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ as propitiator, Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Moreover, Paul adds, through faith. Therefore, this propitiator thus benefits us when by faith we apprehend the mercy promised in him and set it against the wrath and judgment of God. And to the same effect it is written, 
Hebrews 4, 14, and 16, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, and so forth, let us therefore come with confidence. For the Apostle bids us come to God not with confidence in our own merits, but with confidence in Christ as a high priest. Therefore he requires faith. Thirdly, Peter in Acts 10.43 says, To him give all the prophets witness, that through his name whosoever believeth on him shall receive remission of sins. How could this be said more clearly? We receive remission of sins, he says, through his name, that is, for his sake, therefore, not for the sake of our merits, not for the sake of our contrition, attrition, love, worship, works. And he adds, when we believe in him, therefore he requires faith, for we cannot apprehend the name of Christ except by faith. Besides, he cites the agreement of all the prophets. This is truly to cite the authority of the church. For when all the holy prophets bear witness, that is certainly a glorious, great, excellent, powerful, decretal, and testimony. But of this topic we will speak again after a while, when treating of repentance. Fourthly, remission of sins is something promised for Christ's sake. Therefore it cannot be received except by faith alone. For a promise cannot be received except by faith alone. Romans 4.16 Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end that the promise might be sure. As though he were to say, If the matter were to depend upon our merits, the promise would be uncertain and useless, because we never could determine when we would have sufficient merit. And this experienced consciences can easily understand, and would not for a thousand worlds have our salvation depend upon ourselves. Accordingly, Paul says, Galatians 3.22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. He takes merit away from us, because he says that all are guilty and concluded under sin. Then he adds that the promise, namely, of the remission of sins and of justification, is given, and adds how the promise can be received, namely, by faith. And this reasoning, derived from the nature of a promise, is the chief reasoning, a veritable rock in Paul, and is often repeated. Nor can anything be devised or imagined whereby this argument to Paul can be overthrown. Wherefore, let not good minds suffer themselves to be forced from the conviction that we receive remission of sins for Christ's sake only through faith. In this they have sure and firm consolation against the terrors of sin, and against eternal death, and against all the gates of hell. Everything else is a foundation of sand that sinks in trials. But since we receive remission of sins and the Holy Ghost by faith alone, faith alone justifies, because those reconciled are accounted righteous and children of God, not on account of their own purity, but through mercy for Christ's sake, provided only they by faith apprehend this mercy. Accordingly, Scripture testifies that by faith we are accounted righteous. Romans 3.26 We therefore will add testimonies which clearly declare that faith is that very righteousness by which we are accounted righteous before God. Namely, not because it is a work that is in itself worthy, but because it receives the promise by which God has promised that for Christ's sake He wishes to be propitious to those believing in Him 
or because he knows that Christ of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 In the Epistle to the Romans, Paul discusses this topic especially, and declares that when we believe that God, for Christ's sake, is reconciled to us, we are justified freely by faith. And this proposition, which contains the statement of the entire discussion, the principal matter of all epistles, yea, of the entire scriptures, he maintains in the third chapter, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, Romans 3.28. Here the adversaries interpret that this refers to Levitical ceremonies, not to other virtuous works. But Paul speaks not only of the ceremonies, but of the whole law. For he quotes afterward, 7.7, 7, from the Decalogue, Thou shalt not covet. And if moral works, that are not Jewish ceremonies, would merit the remission of sins and justification, there would also be no need of Christ and the promise. And all that Paul speaks of the promise would be overthrown. He would also have been wrong in writing to the Ephesians 2.8, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Paul likewise refers to Abraham and David, Romans 4, 1 and 6. But they had the command of God concerning circumcision. Therefore, if any works justified, these works must also have justified at the time that they had a command. But Augustine teaches correctly that Paul speaks of the entire law as he discusses at length in his book of the Spirit and Letter, where he says finally, these matters, therefore, having been considered and treated according to the ability that the Lord has thought worthy to give us, we infer that man is not justified by the precepts of a good life, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And lest we may think that the sentence that faith justifies fell from Paul inconsiderately, he fortifies and confirms this by a long discussion in the fourth chapter to the Romans, and afterwards repeats it in all his epistles. Thus he says, Romans 4, 4 and 5, To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Here he clearly says that faith itself is imputed for righteousness. Faith, therefore, is that thing which God declares to be righteousness. And he adds that it is imputed freely, and says that it could not be imputed freely if it were due on account of works. Wherefore he excludes also the merit of moral works, not only Jewish ceremonies, but all other good works. For if justification before God were due to these, faith would not be imputed for righteousness without works. And afterwards, Romans 4.9, For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Romans 5.1 says, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is, we have consciences that are tranquil and joyful before God. Romans 10.10, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Here he declares that faith is the righteousness of the heart. Galatians 2.16, We have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, 
lest any man should boast. John 1.12 To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 3.14 and 15 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Likewise, 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Acts 13.38-39 Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. How could the office of Christ in justification be declared more clearly? The law, he says, did not justify. Therefore Christ was given, that we may believe that for his sake we are justified. He plainly denies justification to the law. Hence, for Christ's sake we are accounted righteous when we believe that God for his sake has been reconciled to us. Acts 4, 11-12 this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But the name of Christ is apprehended only by faith. I cannot believe in the name of Christ in any other way than when I hear his merit preached and lay hold of that. Therefore, by confidence in the name of Christ, and not by confidence in our works, we are saved. For the name here signifies the cause which is mentioned, because of which salvation is attained. And to call upon the name of Christ is to trust in the name of Christ as the cause or price because of which we are saved. Acts 15.9 Purifying their hearts by faith, Wherefore, that faith of which the apostles speak is not idle knowledge, but a reality, receiving the Holy Ghost and justifying us, not a mere knowledge of history, but a strong, powerful work of the Holy Ghost, which changes hearts. Habakkuk 2.4 The just shall live by his faith. Here he says, first, that men are just by faith, by which they believe that God is propitious. And he adds that the same faith quickens, because this faith produces in the heart peace and joy and eternal life, which begins in the present life. Isaiah 53.11 By his knowledge shall he justify many. But what is the knowledge of Christ unless to know the benefits of Christ, the promises which by the gospel he has scattered abroad in the world? And to know these benefits is properly and truly to believe in Christ, to believe that that which God has promised for Christ's sake he will certainly fulfill. But Scripture is full of such testimonies, since in some places it presents the law, and in others the promises concerning Christ, and the remission of sins, and the free acceptance of the sinner for Christ's sake. Here and there among the fathers similar testimonies are extant. For Ambrose says in his letter to a certain Irenaeus, Moreover, the world was subject to him by the law for the reason that, according to the command of the law, all are indicted, and yet by the works of the law no one is justified, that is, because by the law sin is perceived, but guilt is not discharged. The law, which made all sinners, seemed to have done injury, 
But when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he forgave to all sin which no one could avoid, and by the shedding of his own blood blotted out the handwriting which was against us. This is what he says in Romans 5.20, The law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Because after the whole world became subject, he took away the sin of the whole world, as he, John, testified, saying, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And on this account let no one boast of works, because no one is justified by his deeds. But he who is righteous has it given him, because he was justified after the labor of baptism. Faith, therefore, is that which frees through the blood of Christ, because he is blessed, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32.1 These are the words of Ambrose, which clearly favor our doctrine. He denies justification to works and describes to faith that it sets us free through the blood of Christ. Let all the sententarists who are adorned with magnificent titles be collected into one heap, for some are called angelic, others subtle, and others irrefragable, that is, doctors who cannot err. When all these have been read and re-read, they will not be of as much aid for understanding Paul, as is this one passage of Ambrose. To the same effect, Augustine writes many things against the Pelagians. In Of the Spirit and Letter, he says, The righteousness of the law namely, that he who has fulfilled it shall live in it, is set forth for this reason, that when any one has recognized his infirmity, he may attain and work the same and live in it, conciliating the justifier not by his own strength, nor by the letter of the law itself, which cannot be done, but by faith. Except in a justified man there is no right work wherein he who does it may live. But justification is obtained by faith, here he clearly says that the justifier is conciliated by faith, and that justification is obtained by faith. And a little after, By the law we fear God, by faith we hope in God. But to those fearing punishment grace is hidden, and the soul laboring, and so forth. Under this, fear betakes itself by faith to God's mercy, in order that he may give what he commands. Here he teaches that by the law hearts are terrified, but by faith they receive consolation. He also teaches us to apprehend by faith mercy before we attempt to fulfill the law. We will shortly cite certain other passages. Truly it is amazing that the adversaries are in no way moved by so many passages of Scripture, which clearly ascribe justification to faith, and indeed deny it to works. Do they think that the same is repeated so often for no purpose? Do they think that these words fell inconsiderately from the Holy Ghost? But they have also devised sophistry whereby they elude them. They say that these passages of Scripture, which speak of faith, ought to be received as referring to a fides formata. That is, they do not ascribe justification to faith except on account of love. Yea, they do not in any way ascribe justification to faith, but only to love, because they dream that faith can coexist with mortal sin. Whither does this tend, unless that they again abolish the promise and return to the law? If faith receive the remission of sins on account of love, 
the remission of sins will always be uncertain, because we never love as much as we ought. Yea, we do not love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that the remission of sins has been granted us. Thus the adversaries, while they require in the remission of sins and justification confidence in one's own love, altogether abolish the gospel concerning the free remission of sins, although at the same time they neither render this love nor understand it, unless they believe that the remission of sins is freely received. We also say that love ought to follow faith, as Paul also says, Galatians 5, 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And yet we must not think on that account, that by confidence in this love, or on account of this love, we receive the remission of sins and reconciliation, just as we do not receive the remission of sins because of other works that follow. But the remission of sins is received by faith alone, and indeed by faith properly so called, because the promise cannot be received except by faith. But faith properly so called is that which assents to the promise, is when my heart and the Holy Ghost in the heart says, The promise of God is true and certain. Of this faith Scripture speaks, and because it receives the remission of sins and reconciles us to God, by this faith we are like Abraham, accounted righteous for Christ's sake, before we love and do the works of the law, although love necessarily follows. Nor, indeed, is this faith an idle knowledge, neither can it coexist with mortal sin, but it is a work of the Holy Ghost, whereby we are freed from death, and terrified minds are encouraged and quickened. And because this faith alone receives the remission of sins, and renders us acceptable to God, and brings the Holy Ghost, it could be more correctly called gratia gratum faciens, grace rendering one pleasing to God, than an effect following, namely love. Thus far, in order that the subject might be made quite clear, we have shown with sufficient fullness, both from testimonies of Scripture and arguments derived from Scripture, that by faith alone we obtain the remission of sins for Christ's sake, and that by faith alone we are justified, that is, of unrighteous men made righteous or regenerated. But how necessary the knowledge of this faith is can be easily judged, because in this alone the office of Christ is recognized. By this alone we receive the benefits of Christ. This alone brings sure and firm consolation to pious minds. And in the church, if there is to be a church, if there is to be a Christian creed, it is necessary that there should be the preaching and doctrine by which consciences are not made to rely on a dream or to build on a foundation of sand, but from which the pious may receive the sure hope of salvation. For the adversaries give men bad advice, therefore the adversaries are truly unfaithful bishops, unfaithful preachers and doctors. They have hitherto given evil counsel to consciences, and still do so by introducing such doctrine, when they bid them doubt whether they obtain remission of sins. For how will such persons sustain themselves in death, who have heard nothing of this faith, and think that they ought to doubt whether they obtain the remission of sins. Besides, it is necessary that in the church of Christ the gospel be retained, that is, the promise that for Christ's sake sins are freely remitted. Those who teach nothing of this faith concerning which we speak, 
altogether abolish the gospel. But the scholastics mention not even a word concerning this faith. Our adversaries follow them and reject this faith. Nor do they see that by rejecting this faith they abolish the entire promise concerning the free remission of sins and the righteousness of Christ. End of Article 2